To God be the glory for the wonderful things that God has done. On behalf of the entire Wake Forest University School of Divinity faculty, staff, and student body, I bring you greetings on this Founders Day celebration. And on behalf of my wife, Cecily Klein, who is here with me today, and our family, I thank you for this opportunity to share the good news of the Lord with you. For years, I've heard so much about this incredible church. More recently, I've heard about the incredible, wise leadership of your pastor, Benjamin Boswell, and the great things that this Myers Park Church is doing under the Baptist banner. And as a, for the last 20 years, as someone who would often describe himself as a disaffected Baptist. I can't tell you what a pleasure and enjoy it is to be here in this particular community today. I'm also glad to be here because it's clear that as a representative of Wake Forest, I've got some home court advantage. It's not often that I'm in a congregation and during the passing of the peace. This morning I said, may the peace of Christ be with you. And a few members of your choir replied, go Deeks. <laughs> All right. I know my dear friend, John Curry, the athletic director, and I believe his mother, Reverend Madeline Gray, is here with us uh, today. Uh, I will make sure to spread that news back to him, that he has a faithful following of Deke fans here in Myers Park Baptist Church. The lesson has been read for your hearing from Isaiah, the 42nd chapter. I want to compliment that text this morning. I want to compliment that text with a corollary from the Gospels. And it comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, entered into the synagogue and talked. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the sages and the scribes. But just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, according to the NRSV. But I think King James just says, a demon-possessed man. But a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, Holy One of God. I have two sermon titles this morning. The sermon could be entitled Declaring New Things, or the sermon could be entitled Maladjusted Saints. Listen to the sermon and then you take your pick. Let us pray. Lord, I need your help. Amen. In this morning's gospel lesson, we witness Mark's account of Jesus' launch into ministry. Jesus enters a synagogue in Capernaum. Unlike Luke's account, Mark does not reveal the morning's lesson. Mark does not provide a text which serves as the basis of Jesus' pedagogical approach, nor does Mark offer a sermon title from which Jesus takes homiletic flight. Mark just wants to let the reader know that Jesus this upstart Jewish rabbi roused the ire of religious professionals. Jesus annoyed the upholders of unjust traditions. In fact, the Bible says that a man with an unclean spirit stood up to give voice to the opposition. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know who you are. Have you come here to destroy us? What, my friends, was Jesus teaching? Use your moral imaginations here and let's take flight back to the first century common era. I can see Jesus walking into the synagogue and opening up the scroll maybe to the 82nd Psalm. With authoritative homiletic conviction, Jesus declared, give justice to the weak and the orphan." Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Or maybe I can see Jesus scrolling down to the prophet Amos to call out governmental corruption. Woe unto those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and who push the afflicted out of the way. Maybe, 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 maybe. Jesus pulled up the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. Jesus turned to Exodus, the 22nd chapter and 21st verse. You shall not mistreat or oppress an immigrant, for you were once immigrants in the land of Egypt. And we, my friends, can put together details about Jesus' sermon based upon Luke's account. For Luke chapter 4 records Jesus' trial sermon in the synagogue. 
And like the Beatitudes in Matthew, Jesus inverts the social power structure. Jesus summarizes the prophet Isaiah found in the 42nd chapter that we read this morning. Jesus declares, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. So it's safe to suggest we know what Jesus taught. And since we know or have a good idea of what Jesus taught, this raises a more interesting question for me this morning. A question that I think relates to many of our Christian communities today. And that's simply this. Why was it such a surprise? What had the established leaders in the synagogue been teaching? If Jesus' voice sounded so fresh, so new, so unique by telling the truth of the Jewish tradition, what conclusions can we infer about the so-called sages and scribes? Obviously, they were not preaching care for the poor. They were not calling out governmental corruption. They were not teaching hospitality toward the stranger, nor were they inverting the social order. But whatever the scribes were teaching, ah, oh, it was so milk toast <laughs> that even the unclean spirits kept quiet. <laughs> Their preaching kept the demons feeling safe, satisfied, and well-adjusted in the household of God. Uh, and I believe, my friend, that's a lesson for the Christian church. Uh, for woe unto the preacher. Woe unto the preacher that is so deceitful and duplicitous. So devious and disingenuous, so dishonest and dishonorable that even unclean spirits find comfort in your presence. Woe unto the religious professional who is so cowardly, contemptible, cowering, cowhearted, caitiff and craven that demonic spirits seek you out for cover and counsel. Woe unto the church that is so well adjusted to injustice, so comfortable with corruption, so impervious to inequality, and so unfeeling about racism and anti-Semitism that it baptizes our bigotries and excuses our cultural intolerance. My friends, this is the sincere fear that I have for the Christian church in our nation today. Rather than being an ecclesia, a called out countercultural community, rather than being a community that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable, rather than being a thermostat that informs the larger culture as opposed to a mere thermometer that merely reflects today's cultural climate. We have too many religious professionals who merely desire political power or hope to expand their brand in the capitalist marketplace. 
And then we wonder why so many preachers are more willing to allay the conscience of the corrupt and justify the practice of the unjust. We wonder why so many churches have become mere political brothels led by religious professionals who have prostituted the gospel for the low price of access power and financial profit. I can imagine this is, what, this is why Jesus showed up in Capernaum. I'm sure he had heard about the evil spirits that had infected the community. I'm sure he realized the lying and the lechery that had laced the congregation. I'm sure Jesus realized the trickery and the trumpery that were testing the faith. Thus, Jesus showed up declaring new things by reviving the most important things about the old. Jesus showed up with the vocal cords of virtue and a tongue of truth. And in a society, in a society where people maintain a culture of duplicity and deception, one drop of truth can often feel like an explosion. One ounce of honesty can make unclean spirits uncomfortable. We know who you are. Are you trying to destroy us? Oh, in many ways, my friends, this story captures why I desire to join the inspiring work of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Our institution was hewn out of similar circumstances that Jesus encountered here in the text. For a few decades ago, as many of you know, some of our Baptist brethren decided to drop their anchors in the harbors of exclusion and intolerance. Those Baptist men decided to get comfort and to find comfort and offer comfort to the unclean spirits of gender discrimination. They decided to soothe the demons of anti-intellectual dogmatism with their heresy of theological certainty. And it was out of these unfortunate circumstances, however, that men and women envisioned a new school of theological training on the campus of Wake Forest. A new school that would embrace all of God's children, namely the ones others opted to reject. A school that would train and prepare those women and men that certain denominations had no use for. A school of the southern region of these United States a school that would denounce old heritages of hate toward cultivating new legacies of love. Since 1999, Wake Forest University School of Divinity has equipped students to be agents of justice, reconciliation, and compassion. The faculty has taught students that it's not enough to welcome the stranger. We have to interrogate logics that render some people strange in the first place. It's not enough to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. We need to better understand the sources of vast food deserts and diminishing resources. And ministry is not about how much a pastor can earn for a living. Ministry 
is about earning a life that's worth living. It's this kind of moral courage, this kind of ethical conviction in my own beloved South that made me want to join the work of Wake Forest School of Divinity. And similarly, my friends, it's appropriate that I spend my first official Sunday as dean here with you, the people of Maya Park Baptist Church. For you are the very sorts of intellectual and spiritual partners that we need. Since 1943, you've been helping Charlotte and this entire country get its God on. <laughs> and you, you provide the moral example and the inspiration that our students need. They need to know that there are communities that offer both individual comfort and social challenge. They need to know that there are communities that can speak truth to power and empower the vulnerable with truth. And it just so happens that you have the type of leadership here that makes unclean spirits of intolerance and injustice stand up and say, I guess we aren't welcome here. <laughs> In other words, you are the type of church that cultivates a community of the maladjusted. Here, I'm referencing the words of Martin Luther King Jr. For it was in October, actually on October 11th, in fact, 1962, the 33-year-old pastor and activist visited Wake Chapel on the campus of Wake Forest University. And on that day, he reminded the students that all of history all of history's most influential figure, figures were labeled as quote-unquote radicals. Whenever someone came along declaring new things by calling on old truths, they were labeled as agitators and dangerous rabble-rousers. Uh, it was true of the Hebrew prophet Amos. It was true of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It was true for those who fought the cause of the American Revolution. And it was true of abolitionists like Harriet Tubman and the Grimke sisters. Each of these pivotal personalities were maladjusted to the evils of society all around them. And I believe today, Myers Park, that this is what God is looking for from the church. Being a well-adjusted church is just so old and tired. God is looking for a community of maladjusted saints. Maladjusted saints who realize that when there is hatred, we reflect love. When there is dishonesty, we demand truth. When there is cynicism, we inject faith. And when there is bigotry, we open up our arms and hearts. But most importantly, Myers Park. God is looking for a community that when we speak, unclean spirits stand up and shout, you're trying to get rid of us. <laughs>